Canterbury fails. Their Canterbury fails. Probably never read them. The Canterbury fails. Might be moralistic or boring. Might be rhetorically soaring. Their Canterbury fails. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Canterbury Fails. This is episode eight. I am David Coley. And I am Matt Hussey. And that sound in the background was my dog growling because he knows that we are about to talk about Adam Davies' five dreams about Edward II. He's already protesting, and and wisely, because... This is not top-notch stuff. I'm gonna just, I'm just gonna tell you. Right you know, now. I have to tell you uh, that I have been feeling like I needed to bring things down a notch. You have been overperforming. I I'm feel not, like I, I have, don't appreciate yeah, the, it. You've <laughs> I, been making my old English texts look really terrible. Yeah. And yours show up, and you're like, I don't know, just this hilarious one about a talking dove, or oh, here's one that kind of sucks. Oh, it's actually ten penis jokes. I mean. This this yeah, thank you I I thank you for so, this miserable dreck thank you so, so this is not this may was I not have another oh there's more where this came from so this was not your favorite uh, this was not your favorite poem so we'll far? get to that with the rating okay um, tell wow. us tell us a little bit about this um, yeah this short let me let me tell you a little bit about poem. this short political poem this is a weird poem it is it is constructed as political. Prophecy. It is five dreams that a gentleman uh, by the name of Adam Davy, or who announces himself to us as the marshal, um, the marshal of Stratford Atbow, yeah. and everywhere else, he's well known uh, around those parts. Um, he has five dreams uh, that prophesy greatness for one of England's least great kings, um, <laughs> and and so. On the strength of this, um, well, we'll talk about the dating in a minute, but, but, but the poem's a weird one because he, he comes out with these five dreams. The first dream, uh, he claims that there are going to be, you know, two knights that are, are beating on, on the newly crowned Edward II, um, or the knight, and Edward II does not return a stroke, but he is unbloodied. Uh, and so you can imagine, okay, this is suggesting greatness in conquest and battle. And then the second dream... I don't know, because he does nothing... Well, okay. well, right, but the second... I'm just telling, you what, I'm just telling yeah. you what Adam Davies tells us. The second dream, he sees a vision of Edward II uh, riding on a pilgrimage to Rome, yeah. where he presumes he's going to be chosen emperor of all Christendom. Yeah. The third dream is a reassertion of the fact that he was chosen an emperor of all Christendom and listener he was not Um, (laughs) the fourth dream Christ this is my favorite one Christ on the the cross yanks himself (laughs) pulls himself off he unnails his hands from the cross to talk and begs the Virgin Mary (laughs) his mom who is down on the ground mourning her son's death and instead of saying you know hey go with go with John he's gonna take care of you now Jesus says, can I please, Mom, go with Edward II on crusade instead of dying and instead being of resurrected, dying on the cross, which is whip, the whole point of Christianity. Right, to whip the ass of our enemies. Like, I love that, too, is very Christian. Yeah. And then, finally, in the fifth, an angel finds him standing. Well, but before that, I mean, I think it's important to remember that one of the things that Adam does, which is really weird, I'm assuming Adam Davy is the actual 
author. We're going to call him the author. Yes, function. let's let's call him the author. So function. Adam Davy keeps interjecting like at, between the fourth and the fifth. He's like, I really, I bet the voice told me I've got to go to the king. I well, have that's to, yeah. I have to tell him. Yep. I know these dreams are true. I, everyone says I should go tell the king this dream. Well, and the voice goes to tell him that he, yep. he needs to tell the king. Yeah, you have to. I, I mean, he, you have to get get with Edward the Second, King Edward the Second, Quick. quickly because <laughs> he's not going to last for long. And tell him these things. And so the fifth dream, we have a vision of sort of martyrdom of yep. Edward II, which is really interesting. He's clad in blood red. He's, bl I mean, he's he is presented here as a kind of holy martyr. He's all in red, yeah. And then we are told by Adam Davy that there were two more things that were shown to him in this last dream, but he can only tell Edward. Yes. And that's sort of it. That's the poem. That's Five it. dreams of Adam Davy. Now, I want to give a little bit of a background here, as we are wont to do on the Canterbury Fails. Yeah, and then we, we can it. get into this drink, and then we can talk about this poem whilst sipping our drink. Um, the poem is supposed to be clearly from the time of Edward II's reign, and presumably when he was popular as a king, which is a very, very brief window. Like maybe just when he was crowned. <laughs> like maybe it was written for the coronation or just before the coronation. One critic, O.F. Emerson, dates it to 1308 because of the specificity of the dates within the poem. So Adam Davies says... And listener, listener. Adam is real specific about it. He's like, on a Wednesday before the... I mean, it was... Yeah, it's It was Tuesday before St. Mary's Michaelmas or whatever, and you're like... Wow, he's really leaning into making it sound like verisimilitude, right? right. He's like well, trying he to make it sound that, real. That, that's the thing. He creates that verisimilitude. Um, but Emerson seems to not believe that this is a literary device, but that this is in fact when Davy had his dreams. It was and a, so it was the simpler Emerson, time. Emerson, Emerson, Emerson <laughs> it, says, it, okay, it, it Davy had these a, dreams, here's when they were, mm -hmm. and then this is when the poem was written. Yeah. I have questions about that, which we can bring up, but the date yes. is presumably early. So as a Middle English poem, and this is again Middle and not Old English, mm -hmm. this is the earliest Middle English poem that we've looked at on the Canterbury Fails, oh. unless that date is wrong. And I think there might be some reasons Ooh, to think that it might be. We're overturning traditional scholarship yes. here in our right podcast. Right here on our <laughs> podcast. Um, the, the, the unique manuscript witness of this poem is in Laud Manuscript 622. And one of the things that's interesting about that manuscript, which is from the late 14th century, is that all of the other texts that it is filled with are from, roughly speaking, the mid to late 14th century, the siege of Jerusalem, a vicious anti-Semitic uh, horror show yeah. um, from the late 14th century, the life of St. Alexius, a jest of Alexander the Great, a bunch of biblical histories, a precy of Solomon's Book of Wisdoms, uh, wisdom, uh, singular. Um, these are all later texts. These are texts that, especially with some of those ones that have gotten attention, like the siege of Jerusalem, we can at least somewhat confidently date okay. um, to the later portion of the 14th century. And the manuscript so itself is paleographically dated. Is paleographically to, to dated to the very end of the 14th century. All right. All right. So one of the things that's interesting here is that this supposedly early 14th century, very early 14th century poem exists. Gets put in with. And, and you know, a, a, a prophecies that clearly were not reliable and did not succeed about a king who went down in ignominy right um, so that's a weird see. thing i'm already to start talking but 
context. I mean, manuscript context-wise. Yep. I mean, I understand the dating is a jarring separation, right? Yes. Let's say if this poem is really from 1308 or 9 or whatever, and the rest of the stuff's from the 1370s or 80s or whatever. Like, the, I get that. That's weird. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it is of a piece in terms of, like, this is a little bit about the Crusades, and the Siege of Jerusalem might be a little bit about the Crusades. Yes. St. Alexis is a little bit about a martyrdom. This poem's a little bit about a martyrdom. Like, it's not a... It's not out of place. It's not, but why you would choose the, why you would choose this bit of political prophecy? I mean, there is a rich and exciting tradition of political prophecy in well, early I'd like English. Well, to hear more about that. Is there really? There, there is. In fact, we have the prophecies of Merlin. We have a whole whack of political prophecies, all of which are vague enough and sort of bizarre enough that you could actually apply them. Across the board, you know, you've got the political prophecy of the boar and the leopard and the tiger and all this kind of thing. This one is weirdly specific, and it is demonstrably failed. Um, and so I don't quite Unless understand. Unless it was written in 1308. We're going to talk about the date. Okay. I just want to say a little bit about the subject of this poem, because we keep talking about the fact that he was a failure as a king and blah, 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 blah. I just want to say a little bit about Edward II, and then you can uh, walk us through this drink that is really calling to me right now. Um, Edward II was the king of England from 1307 to 1327. He falls between two other Edwards, the first and the third. <laughs> Cleverly named. Edward is known for, among other things, his military failures... Yes. And the domestic tensions that developed between the crown during his reign and yes. England's powerful barons. He is also known for the political favoritism with which he treated two men in particular, uh, Piers Gaveston yeah. and Hugh Dispenser. So, uh, historically speaking, Edward begins participating in campaigns against the Scots with his father, Edward I, a far more successful king, but an absolute bastard. Son of a bitch. Edward I, <laughs> the hammer of the Scots. Um, and he sort of... As, the Welsh didn't like him either, let's just... <laughs> no, you would not have liked him unless you were English. But if you were English... Sure. The guy did some good work for you. Um, he, you know, went up and harassed the Scots with his dad in the early 1300s. He was knighted in Scotland in 1306. Um, and he succeeded, uh, after the death of Edward I, married Isabella of France in 1308 as a way of uh, trying to cement a peace between... Wasn't that like the third attempted peace, though? The, the, there's a constant He had like three or four other kind of Oh, there were other marriages. women that he was... That, that oh, were floated were around. To, yeah. But she's the one that he eventually settled on. And this was a move to, again, cement uh, a more peaceful relationship with France. Okay. Um, at that point, I think is that's the moment that we could see Edward II as popular. After that, it was pretty much downhill. Yeah. Um, one of the sticking points uh, in his reign was the favoritism that he lavished on... Sticking points? Easy there. <laughs> was a, a, a favoritism that he lavished on a member of his royal household, member. Piers Gaveston. Easy there. This is, n this is not ten wives. Um, Piers Gaveston. Uh, and in particular, the amount of money, land, power. everything, power, power that he gave to peers enraged England's baronial classes and, frankly, it enraged the French royal family 
to which he was married in order to secure peace. Yep. Um, Gaveston kept getting exiled and then brought back, and eventually he well, every, was... Yeah, he would get exiled by the barons, right? Right, and... And then as soon as the barons, like, looked away, Edward would bring him back. Yes. But, but, the, the, but every time he brought him back, and this is particularly true the second time, Edward conceded something to the barons. So the barons, sort of in order to get Gaveston yeah. back... Edward would sort of enact these reforms that would empower the barons and diminish the crown yeah. to have Piers back. Yeah. Piers was eventually executed uh, because he came back once without being asked, <laughs> uh, was found, and then and then beheaded. Um, that relationship has provoked a whole lot of speculation. Uh, it is entirely possible that they were lovers. It is entirely possible that they were friends. It is entirely possible that they were sworn brothers. Yeah. All of these are... And this is not a modern... Well, it no. Is, it's an early modern. That's we're, we're getting some sound effects from an extraordinarily cute oh, dog that's chewing on something. Um, the, the... I mean, Marlowe, the, drama, well, yeah, the, was... the Elizabethan dramatist, wrote a play that pretty much makes clear that they yes. were... More than friends. Well, and those and, and those rumors uh, circulated within uh, Edward's own lifetime. Yeah. Um, and uh, both of his favorites, Piers and Hugh Dispenser the Younger, Dispenser, yeah. were you know declared sodomites and were treated accordingly uh, by. Uh, were they declared sodomites? I think Dispenser certainly was. I think Dispenser, my <laughs> dog. I think Dispenser may have been uh, castrated and then beheaded. Oh, um, that would be clear. So, I mean, so these are, you know, these are aspersions that were cast. I think it's easy to see how they could be used politically, whether they were true or not. They were certainly used to smear, um, to smear Edward. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and and you were suggesting that that much of this, you know, Marlowe has exploded this in his play. And that's, that's obviously a part of this too. And then Derek Jarman exploded Marlowe's play into the movie where it was even more explicit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that's that's a that's a later development, all yeah. right, from Edward's Edward's career, life, whatever. But his career was not successful internationally either. No. He was meant to follow his uh, asshole father as the hammer of the Scots. Uh, and Instead he got hammered, he got hammered <laughs> by the Scots. Uh, he was forced to surrender uh, at the Battle of Bannockburn by Robert the Bruce and this effectively uh, if not actually at that point uh, created a state of, of independence for Scotland. Um, and then eventually, uh, after um, after Piers Gaveston's death, he found favor and and became um, involved with the Dispenser family, the powerful Dispenser family, um, which put him into further conflict with the House of Lancaster. Um, it was just an absolute storm of international and domestic tensions and failures. Yeah. Um, eventually... He was deposed. Uh, his own wife uh, sort of turned against him. She was sent to France on a on a peace mission because tensions with France had been growing. She refused to come back. Uh, she aligned herself with Mortimer, uh, another powerful magnate. Um, Mortimer returned to England from an exile uh, and essentially with a small army caused uh, Edward's regime to collapse. Edward flees. He's captured. To Wales, um, and is captured and is sent to Berkeley Castle, and he's presumably killed. Although there are moments where it seems like Edward might not be dead, but it's quite clear that he's quite dead. Yeah. Um, and so he, before he was killed, he certainly uh, deposed. He was deposed, and before he was killed, he passed his reign on to his son, uh, Edward the Third. 
So the aptly named. The aptly named Edward III. So that's what we've got. All right, and then and so this is a political prophecy set of political prophecies that may or may not be from the early part of his career. And before we plunge into these issues, I'm going to introduce this week's thematically aligned cocktail, yep. which is which is pretty on the nose and simplistic. Um, what is it called? This the name of this cocktail is the Poet's Dream. Okay. And this is a this is a cocktail that dates to the 30s. It's first wow. published in the 30s. All right. Um, in New York hotel bars, I suppose. Um, it is called the uh, the Poet's Dream. It is made with with gin, vermouth, um, orange bitters, mm-hmm. Benedictine, lemon twist. I have included for for those of you who can't see us, <laughs> which, which is, is all, all of you. one of you. Um, there's a uh, red and white sort of ribbon of candy as a mm. garnish, which you can immediately take off and throw out your window. I'm going to eat it. It'll ruin the drink. It's a part of the drink. It will ruin. <laughs> I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it after. Eat it later. I will. I'll put it aside. Um, and so it, this is, uh, it's served up in in a martini glass. It's nice and cold. And I'll see how it is. I don't know. Um, but it's the poet's dream. The poet's dream. dream. You said it is gin, vermouth, orange bitters, Benedictine, lemon twist. That's it. It's beautiful. Cheers. Let's have this. Yeah, that'll work. That is nice. Yeah, it's the good. The Benedictine brings a kind of herbally yeah, it's got sweetness that's very to it. Citrusy, it's good. A little citrusy lemonness on the top. Mm-hmm. It's good. That is nice. I'm down. I'm going to now have a bite of my candy. Don't do it! Candy. It's like a Sour Patch Kid bar thing. Don't don't ruin it. Oh. Yeah, why would you do that to yourself? Well, you served it with the drink. I know, and I told you to throw it away. It's like when you go to those fancy gastronomy science restaurant mm-hmm. restaurants where they're like... Here, look at this vanilla bean while you eat these mashed potatoes. <laughs> right? We're going to play you the sound of a fish hitting the dock while you chew on this strawberry foam or whatever. Like, that's what we're talking about. Here. Okay. So I shouldn't have eaten it. No. Fortunately, the drink cuts oh, it nicely yeah. at the end. It's not a weak drink. No, it's very tasty. Yeah. I like it a All lot. Right. So there's lots about this poem that I find weird as hell. Mm. Um, I want to hit a few things first. Okay. Which is, it probably goes without saying, it's terrible poetry. It's not good. It's really bad. I just wanted to point out one of my favorite moments is um, at line five to say line uh, 10, right? This, read this. Just focus on the rhymes here, all right? I'll just um, read the first. I'm just going to read the first ten lines. All right. To our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, ich today show min suevna. Hevna, suevna. Sure. I show my dream. That's nice. That's fine. That ich met in on nich of a knith of mickle meath. <laughs> that Nicht I dreamt Nicht. one night of a night of much might. That is not yeah. great either. No. His nom is Ihot Sir Edward the King. Prince of Wallace, Engeland, the fair thing. May matter that he was armed well, both with Irna and with Stell. It is really... No, get, keep going. Here's the rhyme. A coroon of gold become no, him... No, you skipped one. Oh. And on his helm that was of Stell, a, a coroon of gold become him well. So sh- this poet just put together this stunning set of rhymes in their couplets. Well and Stell, and then Stell... And well. Oh, yeah, he did. All, 
all the same words, mm. but, right? There you go. So we know Stoden mode. It's not a great poem. It's, See, didn't read yeah. upon and don't. Yeah, it's pretty okay. So, but what's, basic. what's more interesting to me is this: this pronounces itself as a, as a dream vision. These kinds of dream visions are often used to do prophetic stuff, mm -hmm. right? That's fine. That's typical. That's generic for late medieval poetry yeah. or earlier medieval poetry. Um, but you mentioned this sort of in your in your intro. Some of the dream is enigmatic and cryptic and weird enough to be like a dream, right? Yep. And also to be enigmatic enough to be like, oh yeah, this is prophecy, but you have to figure out what it really means. Right. Like, like the first dream. Right, take where the first dream for he's example. standing there well-armed, there's two knights on either side, one knight on either side of him, who are hacking at him, and he's unhurt by this, and there's streams of light pouring out of his ears, red, red and white, white striped white. light yeah. pouring out of his ears. All right, and you're like, oh, that's weird, what does that mean? That's a fair enough question. But the other dreams, there's no, you don't no. have to worry about what they mean. It's like, he was being crowned the king of Christendom. Yep. He was going on pilgrimage, he was going on crusade. There's no, nothing, enigmatic about it so the tonal shift is just weird like, yeah and so this is one of the reasons that i struggle with the dating right i mean so on the one hand this could be uh, you know insofar as these things demonstrably did not happen in edward's reign he never had light shooting out of his ears well what are you saying you could at least imagine the first dream as being like, okay, it's this, you know, the warriors are this, they represent the Scots or something like that. And they beat on him. But they can't do But anything. they can't do anything because he is so great. But he's also powerful. super impotent because he right. can't swing back. Well, but he doesn't need to. That's how powerful he is. His ear beams will take him out. His ear beams will take <laughs> them out. And they're red and white. They're not blue and white. That is no St. Andrew's Cross no, kind it's, of. It's the red and white, but St. George's Cross wasn't around yet. That's true. That's late for, that's 14th. I know, but was St. Andrew's? No, St. George's Cross, the red and white. Right, but was the was the um was oh, the I blue don't know and white when, one? Was? I don't know when the blue and white one came around. Mm. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. In any event, it could so do nothing. So, but that but, but that is cryptic enough that we could all have our little QAnon conspiracy theories about what right. that first dream meant. Oh, it means he's a martyr. Oh, it means he's victorious in battle. Oh, it means that he's, you know, impervious to the right. trammels of this world. But then the next one's like straight out just like not prophetic, not it's not enigmatic. It's just like literal. His second dream. Hold on. I just want to write it down here. The second dream. He's riding on an ass towards Rome in a gray mantle. Right. I mean, the only thing kind of wild about that is he's not wearing shoes or pants. Or hose. No. He, right? he is definitely not. Shoes and pants, which is kind of fine because that's a pilgrim thing. But My dog hates this poem, with, by the way. I know. Fair enough, buddy. I don't believe it either. Um, but with no, but he's, he's got red legs, which yes. freaks the poet out. It yes. makes him feel, it's like, oh, his legs were red. Ah! But in the other one, he's being dubbed in the at, in Rome by the Pope. He's wearing gray Well, he's there. being dubbed the knight. He's being dubbed the emperor of all Christendom. Yep, and but, he's anti-Saracen there. Right. I mean, that's very prosaic, very clearly concrete and political. There's nothing enigmatic about that. In the fourth one, you know, there's the Jesus, as you... <laughs> Jesus is unnailing himself from the cross, and he's like, "Look, this guy's the best. I'm not. I'm going to forego death and resurrection because I'd rather hang with Edward." Mm. Right? That is a bold choice. Jesus, it's a bold choice. It changes really everything. Yeah. And and Mary's like, "No one has served us better than Edward." So it's like he's pious. I mean, they're so not cryptic at all. So it's like it's just like 
weird stylistic dive bomb off after the first dream. I know. Right? And I then know. my question for you, because this is the question I really need. What the hell was this poem for? Well, this is what I'm wondering. What is it trying to I don't know do? why. I don't know why it would have been written early in Edward's reign because it declares him perpetually to be a martyr. It shows him yeah. covered in blood. It's decked him out in the colors of martyrdom, red and white, red and white. all the in time, yeah. constantly yeah. references to his martyrdom. That, it does not seem to me, is a particularly auspicious sign for a just-crowned king. I know, especially because it's weird because he aligns himself, as many early 14th century kings did, yes. with, with, Edward, with Edward the, the Confessor, confessor. And who was not a martyr. And who bears his name. Yeah. Right? So that would have made all kinds of sense, right? So the martyrdom stuff is very strange in a sort of coronation prophecy, right? It's yeah. really weird. You don't, like, suggest that your king is going to be martyred. That That is anathema to the idea it's of... Very, it's very unusual. To yeah. That's very strange. So beyond that... It's also there's like, all this, there's also there's also as you mentioned when we were talking about this before my dog is rammy today when you mentioned this before there is no mention of the Scots who he was supposed to follow his father in subduing and bringing down which he didn't do there is reference to the possibility of a crusade so which I, his father positioned himself as a bit of a crusader so there might be some but he got sort of waylaid by the Scots. I mean, Edward the first, you know, thought maybe he'd go on a crusade, but then he kept getting pulled up short I mean, by the, the Scots as well. Over man, the Crusades were done. No, they weren't. Yeah, they were. No, they were still. When was like Acre? Acre fell in twelve. Yeah, but there were crusades. I mean, there were, the, but the last. I mean, the Nicopolis Crusade was in thirteen ninety six, eight, something super, like that. That's not the same. Well, I mean, it's 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 clearly the burnt out, horrifying edge of a horrifying series of conquests uh, and counter conquests and like depravity. Yeah. But but it, I mean, I'm thinking of the bulk of the Crusades where the Holy Land yeah, was, but we really, see, was really at stake. But we see late 13th century. Yeah, but we still see even in the 14th century, even even in the late 14th century with Richard II, we see, you know, people are trying to encourage him to launch new crusades. So they they play a political role. I think there's some power in evoking the Crusades. There's certainly power in evoking the you know, pilgrimage, right? right? We're making a pious king. We're making a warlike king. I get that. And it would make sense to me that this would occur early in his career. Yep. That you would say, he's going to be pious. He's going to be a conqueror. He's going to be He's going to kick some Saracen ass. Well, that's the other... But there's that's why it's wildly uneven. Because he's... Why put him in, um, as a martyr? So... Here's where I start to have some questions. Edward II was, if not universally at least, widely reviled yeah. in his lifetime. It is hard to imagine, uh, as an act of patronage, somebody writing for an English baron a paean to Edward II. It doesn't make much sense no. in those terms. No. Um, it doesn't make much sense to me to have him be described as a soon-to-be martyr while he is still the king. Young. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was young when he was crowned. Uh, you know, I mean, so it was not, he's not Prince Charles. He's not like, you know, this Prince of Wales is 75 years old or whatever. Was he, he's the first Prince of Wales. Yes. I mean, he's the first English royal who's 
been named the Prince styled of Wales. the Prince of Wales. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's weird. The martyrdom stuff. I mean, you're, you're talking about all these other things that are sort of too on the nose that, that are that are too that are not cryptic enough. The martyrdom stuff bugs me out. I don't understand what place that has I don't in know. I just, a prophecy a, about a king. And so this is why I tend to want to think that it is possible that this is post hoc, that this was written after his death because there were at least two moments. Are you saying in that you the disagree with O.F. Emerson? <laughs> well, O.F. Emerson did do his work, which is to say that he sat around in his study and thought long and hard about this. But he's the one who does the dating, right? He's the one who does the dating. Look, both of his ginormous Victorian mutton chops will beat you down. <laughs> no, they will. Unless you agree with them. They will beat me down, but I will stand there and not be harmed oh. by them, and I will not return a blow, and he will still be vanquished, because here's my thoughts. I'm ready. I'm here on this podcast, having just read this poem for the first time, and I'm ready to <laughs> slap down. Upend its entire Let's literary it. history. So there are two moments in post-Edward II-ian England where Edward has moments of prominence. Uh, they are The first one is in the 1340s. There are rumors that begin to circulate that Edward may still be alive. And as you told me, as we were sort of pre-gaming this, there's apparently some dude in Wales. William of Wales? Well, is no, that... he's not in Wales, but he calls himself. He calls him, and, oh, and he claims to be Edward II. Yeah. And so the rumor of Edward's continued existence yeah. is, is continued he's like life. Elvis. Right. He comes <laughs> back. Right. And this provides a node of resistance for uh, sort of forces who are antagonistic to Edward III. Okay. Okay. So on the on the okay. sort of sa- so so so, they, so, so the possibility that Edward II exists, that he's still alive, and that Edward III is an illegitimate usurper, which of course he he was, um, because yeah, he presumably he had his him. father I killed, mean, or at you, least. Mortimer and yeah. Isabella, like we don't. It's not difficult to. to we don't know where to cast blame, the death to but some of Edward that III. falls on Edward III's head. Yes. So there is, you know, as with any kingship, and this is, you know, this is true of of Richard II after his death um, during the reign of Henry IV. There were sightings of Richard II to the point where they exhumed him and reburied him, um, just to demonstrate to demonstrate that sure. he was really, he was really dead. dead. Yeah. So I mean, so this seems to be par for the course. For deposed okay. and murdered so English monarchs. In your theory, in my theory, one possibility here is that this was written after the de- soon after the death, but perhaps dur- during a period of discontent with the reign of Edward III. My second thought, and this would fit with the manuscript context, with all of these late 14th century poems that surrounded it, is that it was written at a time when Richard II, so this would be 1377 to 1399, so this would be very late in the 14th century, that it was a time when Richard II was actively working to promulgate Edward III's, uh, sorry, Edward II's cult. Um, Actually, it it turns out that Richard II wanted to canonize uh, Edward II, his great-grandfather. This did not go over big with the Pope, uh, (laughs) you will be surprised to learn. Um, But there was a move to, uh, to, 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 to develop, to sort of promulgate a cult 
of Edward II within England. Um, and this would be very much in keeping with uh, sort of object, art objects like the Wilton Diptych, um, which, uh, you know, features uh, Edward kneeling before Christ and the Virgin Mary surrounded by no, sort of his... Richard. Uh, did Richard, I say Richard? Richard surrounded, um, kneeling before Mary and, and, and the infant Christ, yeah. surrounded by his... Uh, sort of cadre of personal saints and no and 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 um, and English saints. So Edmund uh, the Martyr, Edward the Confessor, and John the Baptist surround him. Um, two of those three appear in this poem. Now, as you've pointed out, they would probably appear anyway. Yeah. But this strikes me as propagandistic in a I, way that would be consonant with Richard II's aims at certain points in his royal career. Okay. Uh huh. A. Our one re- listener is dying right now because we are like debating <laughs> like obscurities of late 14th century political this propaganda. Is where the, this is where the money is. It's big money. <laughs> so to you, here, here. Um, but but second, the thing that I find hard, I like this theory because it does make more sense of this poem in some ways, um, is that. Um, why would you build into this retroact, like retrospective prophetic poem, right? A poem that looks back to look forward. None of the things that Edward did. Well, is that because he did nothing? <laughs> That's my thought. I mean, it's like what, what can you he do? Never named himself a crusader king. He, he never did well. I mean, he, he got pummeled by the Scots. He surrendered power to the barons. He was deposed and murdered. I mean, why not make the mar? I mean, I just think it's like he was so. These this poem projects him as pious, projects him as a pilgrim, projects him as a crusader. And he was none of those things. Okay, so let me let me pose this. As that a, doesn't stop medieval propaganda usually. I guess I see that. Well, and, and I just want to you know draw a, a contemporary analog. I believe it was. Oh my god. Was it was it seven or eight months ago that that five or six hundred people gathered in Dealey Plaza to see the return of John F. Kennedy Jr., who was going to lead the Republican Party to a new? Do, do you remember that moment? Oh, I do. Okay. This is in a world where information is ubiquitous, where propaganda is also ubiquitous, but in which a critical mass, well, I mean, let's not say a critical mass, but at least a mass of people who all had the tools to know better. They don't. We're waiting... For, you know, for, for, you know, the QAnon prophet John F. Kennedy Jr. to emerge from the dead at the place of his father's martyrdom. Like, it was a weird moment, right? Yes. So what I'm saying, or what I'm suggesting, is that in the 1380s, when we didn't have the internet, when what we had were these cryptic, weird political things that ran around. I don't think there is any less of a chance. Cryptic. It's not cryptic. I mean, you know, so I guess that the key, I guess the key is that to read the overdetermined martyr imagery, right? And then to and then to accept that in fact there's a way to read Edward's death as a martyr. And that these other things were, you know, Greatness that 
was meant to or would come to pass that you know that it was short-circuited by his martyrdom i i don't know he would jesus would have gotten together with him and rode off to wherever if, if only he had yeah, i mean if I, he had if he had had world enough in time yeah and so, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, I'm not saying this makes logical sense. It also doesn't make logical sense that JFK Jr. was going to come back in Dealey Plaza and support the Republicans. It didn't make any sense at all. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I need, to, I need to do a little bit more of a deep dive. But <laughs> what I'm saying is that the work that this You're being do. punished for eating those horrible candies. <laughs> I know, I ate yours too. I'm I sorry. I have a bit of a sour sweet tooth. I apologize. Oh, Jesus. Anyway. It's a. I. I just think that this. I, I'm willing to. I like. I like your. It, it. It. I think that this. That your your call to redate the poem demands. It puts a new imperative on new work on the poem mm. because we need to instead well, of reading those. <coughs> so this poet multiple times is super specific about the date of these dreams. Yep. So. And, and, you know, in typical Victorian critical fashion, some old dude with mutton chops, as we've been joking about, went and, like, said, well, a Wednesday on, you know, All Hallows' Eve could only have been right. this year, this year, or this year. Those need to be reread then. Yeah. We need to reread those dates or maybe rethink the cultural and or religious meanings yeah. of those, <laughs> what is that's exactly it. I mean these holidays. are these are specific holidays that are being evoked yeah. is it possible that they are being evoked not simply to date with scientific accuracy the swivna <laughs> that Adam Davy had yeah. but to suggest of whom we have no record no record Adam Davy is not no but but to suggest Edward's affinity with these various figures yeah. in biblical and liturgical time English history, yeah. 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 So I mean, these are. I think it would demand a sort of re-understanding of what work those dates are doing within the poem. Well, and and we'll say that is. <clears throat> we already said this, but it's one of the weirdest things about this poem is how a super specific about the time, the timing of his dreams, and b. Super specific about who he is. Yeah, I'm Adam Davy. I am the marshal at Stratford at Bow. I like it's like we never we don't get that no in medieval poetry no. And he actually says, and this is one of the things that is is bizarre. I mean, at, at, toward the end of this poem, he says, "I would stake my life on the fact that these things will come to pass." No, he says, "If they don't come to pass, throw me in prison." Oh, is it? It's yeah. just his prison. Throw me in prison. Right. So, which is like, and and, and they clearly didn't come to pass. No. So I guess is, it's it's a weird one. So weird, it's time to rate it. Is it time to rate it's it? It's time to rate it. I just want to say one more thing about oh, this no. poem. It's time to... Okay. <laughs> this is a genuine Canterbury fail. Oh. We have we have stretched the rules a couple times for these to allow, like, the Old English <laughs> Boethius in because nobody's talked about that specific tiny section. Yeah, or know, we've had yeah. two or three more articles since, uh, you know, 2000 than we were meant to. There is... Very little on this. So, listener, if you want to write on something that has not been written about... We've already proposed the project to demonstrate the new date. Sure. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna do there that. you go. I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. No, there you go. That's well, your next, your next Kalamazoo paper will be on... Oh, God, i got to write this On redating. New light on Adam and David. <laughs> All right. And I, the, I think the names Adam and David might be useful mm. in this process as well, but I'm going to stay out of that. Okay. All right. Um, 
I'm going to rate it on a scale from one to five dreams. Okay. Which I think is a natural thing. Mm. And I have to tell you, this has not been one of my favorite no. things. It, it has, I mean, a dream vision, sign me up. I like that stuff. Weird, cryptic, political, historical stuff. I don't know, kind of fun, maybe a little bit. But really, tr- me, I just was banging my head against the wall trying to figure out, A, what the hell this poem's doing. Okay. And B, who cares? Like, I just, like, the so what? <laughs> the so what? So I'm going to give it a um, one out of five wow. dreams. Wow, that yeah. is a low. I know. I think I'm going to give this... A, a, I, I'm between two and three here. No, oh. um, because I like three's well, above average. I I think I need the average. Can I do a half dream? Can I do sure? This poem's got all kinds of stupid two, stuff. <laughs> it's two and a half dreams. It's I, we're halfway between no dreams and and full dreams. Because to me, I, the questions that this raises are interesting enough from a sort of historical standpoint. Yes. In terms of the manuscript standpoint, I'm interested in that stuff. Um, I also am fascinated with any kind of payon to an absolute failure of a king. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested in, in why this poem would choose to recuperate this figure. Um, and if so, it's recuperating. If it's recuperative. It, it might be when he was crowned. I know. All right. I, I will give it to, I'm still going to, I'm sticking with it. Two and a half dreams. Time to rate the cocktail. The cocktail was delicious. Um, <laughs> I will give the cocktail four dreams mm. um i would probably have given it five dreams if i didn't have to eat those two candy patons you didn't have to that you put in it um I but i thought it was excellent to. it was nice and herby it had a very nice citrus zing to it um i was pretty happy with it it was also pretty strong and i appreciate that in a beverage yeah. so uh four dreams for the drink two and a half dreams for me yeah i'm gonna give it home. four dreams as well the cocktail was uh it's what i look for in a cocktail it you know Pummels you across the face. It's got weird medicinal qualities. It's got some herbal stuff going on. I love a citrus overtone. I'm down with the cocktail. Okay. I liked it a lot. I would actually drink a poet's dream again. Also, soft spot for historical cocktails. I know. I know. Uh, um, so that wraps uh, episode eight. Episode of eight. We will be back. Canterbury fails. We will be back with old English next time. Matt will be choosing the text. I will be choosing the cocktail. So stay tuned. <laughs>